everybody, and welcome to the Professor Zinn podcast. I am Dr. Karen Kelsky of the Professor Zinn, and as always, I'm delighted that you are here with us today. And I am Cal Weinhold, also of the Professor Zinn. And as always, we want to do a very quick shout out to our supporting members who keep us on air and keep our marvelous editor paid. And uh, for $3.99 a month, you too can become a supporting member of our podcast. Just go to bit.ly slash ourpod, O-U-R-P-O-D. There you go. And if you decide to become a supporting member, you get access to a private social network page. You get access to a free webinar every month. You get access to ask me anything, not just me, Karen or me. And uh, the opportunity to tell us what you think we should be talking about in this here podcast. Yeah. So. All right. Well, today is a banner day at the Professor is in podcast because we are delighted to welcome a guest, Dr. Samira Rajabi, who is Assistant Professor of Media Studies at CU Boulder and the author of a brand new book called... All my friends live in the computer. <laughs> Tactical media, trauma, and meaning-making. So, Samira, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. Yeah. Can you, can you add, can you, uh, aside from my brief, uh, highly bare-bones um, introduction just now, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so I just um, started as an assistant professor at CU Boulder, but I've been an instructor here for a couple of years. Um, But I am someone who's really interested in trauma and how we use digital media to understand the really, really tough stuff we go through and how we might be able to learn about how we're organically using these things to try to be more um, proactive in how we might deploy them. So, um, I kind of learned about it from my own health experiences and my own life of, um, where I've experienced some suffering. So that's what I care about. And other things about me, I have two dogs. One has three legs, one has four legs. I have a husband I love and yeah. All right. Are you from Colorado? I am originally from Colorado, born in Denver. All right. So no, no big adjustments to the altitude then. No, although I lived in uh, Philadelphia for a couple of years. And when I came back, I was like, I've gone soft. My skin is dry and it, I am winded. <laughs> That's, That's sort of the Colorado experience for anybody visiting. <laughs> my, my skin has gone dry and I am winded. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So, Samira, I read about you and your work on Anne Helen Peterson's newsletter. And I was transfixed by your concept of ambiguous grief and also your discussion of social media and trauma. And that's why I wanted to bring you on to our podcast, because our podcast being about <laughs> being about the Academy is basically about grief and trauma. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So first of all, I'd love to hear you just talk about those terms and what they mean for you and how you came uh, to, ta- to, to articulate them. And then, you know, we can move on from there. Absolutely. So um, ambiguous grief is actually not my term. I didn't come up with it, but I get it from um, actually a book called Ambiguous Loss, which is written by uh, somebody named Pauline Boss. And what she's talking about is 
um, within psychology, how you might help people cope with a loss that is either psychologically present and physically absent or vice versa, um, physically present, but psychologically absent, like somebody who has dementia or Alzheimer's would be, would be a loss like that. But the, the flip side of that loss. And so content warning to talk about pregnancy loss real quick here, um, is something that's, you know, maybe psychologically present, but physically absent. Right. Mm -hmm. And I actually experienced a pregnancy loss. And that's how I came to this term because like many academics, I'm like, okay, let's make sense of this weird thing. I just went through, let's turn it into our research. That's Mm -hmm. a healthy decision. (laughs) (laughs) I dove headfirst into this literature on, on why, uh, miscarriage grief was a specific kind of trauma. And I wanted to understand that. And I wanted to understand what it was to grieve something that really doesn't exist anymore. And maybe the expectation of something you're grieving, not just what happened, but what was supposed to happen. And then I started to realize, yeah, we can apply that concept of ambiguous loss to kind of the components that's talked about in the psych literature, but we're actually all experiencing some kind of ambiguous loss with COVID. Mm-hmm. And so I think what I try to do that's that's different from what the psych literature did is try to understand how people were using digital media to convey that grief, right? How that loss leads to a very real grief that we are navigating as a collective. So, so many of us in COVID Obviously, COVID hit different people in different ways, and, and there's kind of a scale and a continuum to how severe the effects have felt, and, and privilege and class and all of these things matter to that. But in general, to some degree, everybody lost something, right? right? Yeah. And everybody then grieved what they thought was going to be versus what was, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's significant, and it's significant to try to understand what that means for us and what that grief looks like moving forward and how we navigate that grief and how we make legible that grief and how we honor that in other people and how we deploy empathy uh, sometimes unevenly for that grief and how we police the boundaries of who gets to grieve all of that. I was, my mind sort of started to explode trying to understand it. So I've, that's what I've been thinking with. So I'd be really interested in, in sort of ticking that one, one bit over of taking that ambiguous grief of COVID and laying it right on top of sort of you just starting as an assistant professor or, or all those folks in the academy who had an expectation of what last year was going to look like, whether it was their first year or their fifth year or their middle of their graduate program. Or the, I was thinking about the other day, the start of people started their graduate programs in, mm-hmm. in the middle of COVID. Mm-hmm. Or their job search. Right. So what did you see... What was what did you see in terms of the social media conversation or or among your peers and or what did you experience? Where did you find that in your experience as an assistant professor or in your observation of other faculty members? So I think for me, what was interesting is I advocated for myself to become an assistant professor during the time period of COVID, because I think one of the things that makes ambiguous grief so hard to navigate is it's steeped in an uncertainty it's a grief that's hard to pinpoint. We don't have social rituals that help us navigate it. So we just sort of sit in it and Mm. we stew Mm. in it. And as somebody who was stewing in a contingent position at my university, 
I just decided that that was all the uncertainty I could handle. And so I, you know, I, I was pretty honest with my department. It's, we make this transition for me that, that we've discussed or, or not. Um, but I want that kind of certainty to be, to be deployed in, in my life because it's going to help me order and structure my life. That said, I'm incredibly privileged that that worked mm-hmm. for me and I'm lucky. And I did, that's not usually how it goes. Um, I think one of the things I saw, especially with grad students in particular, is when you come into a graduate program for a PhD or a master's, there's sort of a schedule that you're meant to follow, right? And despite all the attempts to hold to that schedule, there was all these other forces um, pulling us away from those schedules and preventing us from meeting those deadlines. And so people just felt sort of lost. And the academy tried to put a structure that was built long before the pandemic onto this world that it didn't fit for anymore. And I think that left people feeling like they were alone in navigating their grief or that they had very little outlet through which to understand what it meant to, to feel lost in that particular moment. I mean, it's, we saw it at workplaces across the board, right? Trying to apply mechanisms that work in an offline world to a world that has moved online out of literal fear for our lives. Right. And so that's not something we knew how to navigate. And I don't think that many workplaces effectively figured out how to restructure the thing, right? Like a lot of universities gave people who are on the tenure track time, like a pause on their, on their tenure clocks, but we didn't do that for graduate students. Right. right? So what does that then mean for how those people feel valued and for how those people are, are navigating this thing that they're a part of? Yeah. And, you know, sitting deeply, deeply involved in social media as I am, as the professor is in watching conversations unfold, it seems to, although, but also at the same time, not located in an academic department or any on a university campus, it seems to me that this year is worse than last year in some ways, because last year, while it was chaotic and distressing, Everybody kind of had a sense of we're pulling together to try to make this drastic transition online to save everybody's lives and and health. This year, it's this incredibly piecemeal return to campus in the middle of this massive culture war against with these vaccine mandates and anti-maskers and everything kind of crumbling in in a in a really demoralizing way, I think, at least to me. Anyway, and I'm wondering, I'm wondering if you have noticed that uh, either on your own campus or generally, and and how you feel. You know, listening to you, I feel like it's there's this grief. It is precisely this grief, and some folks are are proving to be. Well, first of all, our institutions are incapable of just managing sustained disruption like this. And second of all, a lot of folks are so uncomfortable with grief and loss that they're just pretending it doesn't exist. But what do you think? (laughs) Yeah, I definitely think, I mean, I think last year was hard and this year is hard. They're just a different hard, right? right? So last year there was kind of this shared, we're in this together. There was, there were more attempts, I think, to give empathy where possible, while still sort of delivering whatever the institution is meant to deliver, right, which also led to a lot of kind of clashes, right, between populations. But this year is sort of different because it's, it's a return to normal, right? It's a, it's a let's go back to the way things were. But what we need is not a return to normal, but a reconstruction of what 
an education institution can look like after massive disruption and wide scale grief and loss. Right. And we didn't do that. I mean, not to, this might sound like kind of a trivial example to some people, but anybody who knows me knows I love Peloton. Mm -hmm. I was going to ask about that. (laughs) Oh my God, I'm obsessed. I know that's probably not what I'm supposed to say. You are not alone. I mean, look, so one of my favorite instructors is this like powerhouse Robin Arzon, like very curated public identity, but when she just had a baby. And one of the things she said is after we have a baby, we're not meant to bounce back. We're meant to bounce forward. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And, and it's the same thing with illness. When I got, I, I had a major illness. I had a brain tumor. I had to have several brain surgeries and everybody's like, well, you'll feel back to normal soon. And I was like, first of all, normal is a made up concept. We've constructed that for ourselves. I don't want to return to how I was. I want to figure out who I am now. Right. Right. And navigate life in that body. And I think as institutions, we have failed to figure out how we deliver education now in the Mm -hmm. present moment. So we've, we've struggled to return to this normal where so many people are like, that doesn't work for me anymore. I'm sad. I'm exhausted. I'm still worried about dying. Right. All of these things are still happening. And, and I don't even necessarily think it's the fault of the people in the institutions, right? There's a lot of well-meaning people doing good work, trying to do their job. Right. But the institutions weren't built to be flexible in this way. Mm -hmm. They weren't designed this way. And, and there's no, real roadmap to how to redesign them effectively. Well, it seems like to me that they follow the same model that the, that we've used in the U S since, since colonization of this, let's just keep denying something's going on so we can continue to accrue what we set out to accrue. So, right. So whether that's wealth or students or, or land or whatever it is, we're just going to keep ignoring the experience on the ground so we can get what we want. And growth and progress and as if resources are infinite. Right. Well, and also just that with that whole colonizer mentality of mm-hmm. everything needs to grow and be mm-hmm. bigger and everything. So I see it as really a reflection. The university does not exist. You know, if you've listened to me enough, you know, I will say the university does not exist separate from capitalism. You cannot separate it from capitalism, which means you cannot separate it from the American system, which means... this university doesn't care about your soul. And I feel like a lot of people this year in the last couple of years, we've been making that rant for 10 years now, Mm -hmm. but I feel like a lot of people this year ended up on their butts going, Oh my God, they don't care about me in a way that they had really didn't grasp before that. And I'm not making that, not making the people in the institution, the bad guys. I'm saying this is a, capitalist institution within a particular system and this is how it plays so do you see have you seen in because you're watching social media are you seeing people sort of with that reverberation going on that shock absolutely i think there's a a tension between kind of this ideal of education and this like delivering that within a capitalist system that very much runs the institution. Right. And I've been lucky because I haven't really experienced it on the ground. My department is amazing. My chair is my advocate in a very, very real way. Right. And I've been extremely lucky. I know that is not the case. I see that that is not the case in online interaction right across the board. And, and, And so people are struggling. I think it comes from this space where we view success or progress as perpetual motion. Right. 
right? We must continuously be charging forward. And I think this relentlessness of this pace is is part of the problem. Yeah. Because what if we just decided this institution, whatever institution you're at, is going to not offer any kind of class or programming for just the summer, right? Obviously, there's a revenue loss there. I get that. It may be impossible to sustain. But let's say we could do that. And we could say, let's set, spend this three months figuring out how to navigate what the educational landscape looks like given the amount of anxiety and fear among students, among graduate student faculty and instructors, among full-time faculty, among contingent faculty, to say, let's let's maybe try to solve even 1% of those things, mm-hmm. right? But we don't even give ourselves the time. It's just, we all got to keep delivering and delivering. And that is a, a, a pressure brought on by capitalism yes. because even public institutions are not truly public anymore. Like I think, you know, state funding in Colorado is, is down around like one or 2%, something like that. Um, that's not a true public institution. Right. And so we have to keep providing the good. So people keep paying for the good. And again, unless you're in a department like mine, that's where you see people, you know, stepping up to advocate for their faculty and and their students, you're kind of out there on your own and it's really scary. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, speaking of social media, one of the surprising developments of the last 12 months is that I decided spontaneously one day to create a Professor Is Out private Facebook group, as opposed to the big Professor Is In page that has like 130,000 members. I started this private group with the idea that if people were too traumatized, distressed, upset, uh, lonely, isolated, um, and unemployed within an academic setting, there'd be a place where they could connect with one another. And it has almost uh, 9,000 members now. And that's been in, you know, only a few six months. And the dialogue is really, really dynamic and ongoing every day. Many, many, many. I mean, I don't, I haven't even counted how many posts a day, but it is really a busy place. And what I'm struck by, well, I guess it's a version of what Kel just said, but it's like it took a global pandemic for the scales to fall from people's eyes, for them, for academics to finally stop defending. I don't know, is it defending the academic institution or, or is it personalizing failure, saying I'm yeah. a unique failure that I couldn't get a job? It's my own fault. No, it's not. It's a system. It's a right. system-wide failure. So... Anyway, because of the way social media is such the, the foundation of what we do at The Professor Is In, it's not the foundation, but it's, very, it's a really major part of it. I'm amazed at how this Facebook pay, uh, private group has become a, a, a place of healing and coping for so many people who have been left out of academic employment. Yeah, so I've been in that group. Oh, <laughs> cool. I've been in that group. Because like many academics, I wasn't sure if this was a good place for me. I think it is. I think I can make a considerable difference within my institution because I have a lot of resource access and a lot of luck and a lot of privilege and a lot of other things that enable me to do that. But I wasn't sure about it. And it actually took that space of sharing to figure out what am I willing to take on? What is mine to take on? What is my responsibility, right? And that's a that's a facet of capitalism too, that any kind of systemic failure we instead take on ourselves, right? right? I lay the blame on my own body or my own mind for failing in some way, right? Whereas we know, we know as like 
grad programs that we are bringing in and producing more PhDs than, than there are jobs, right? right? We know that. And so, you know, departments are now trying to figure out how can I parlay these skills into, into non-academic work, but very much kind of the ethos and the general kind of vibe of the academy is that like you do this to get this particular job and, and that's, what's most valuable and as somebody who came into my PhD program, not having any idea what the word academic meant, people are like, do you want to be an academic? And I was like, aren't we all doing academics? And what are these people talking about? And I have no idea. I wanted to go work in NGOs. I have no idea how I got here. Right. But I, I ended up here and even I drink the Kool-Aid, right. After a couple of years, it's like, okay, yeah, I got to do this job. This is what's valuable. This is the way work is valued. This is the way I become valuable and our identity becomes our career, right? We know this y'all have talked about this, but the the thing that helped me in that community is this recognition that like, this is actually just a job, Right. right. It's a job I care about. It's a job. So much of my personal experience goes into my research for, but at the end of the day, it's a job. I am trading my productivity for pay. (laughs) And at the end of the day, I can say, I did what I needed to do. I'm going to go home. Like I set a rule for myself (laughs) when my spouse is not working, I am not working. So he works until 5 PM. I work until 5 PM. Then I go home and I play with my dogs and I watch television and I, I read actual books for fun. Right? Like We're not taught to have that boundary. We're taught that it's like a a badge of honor to to work more and work harder and to suffer more for it. But that is a myth. And that's capitalism's myth. That's not my myth to perpetuate. And I'm not interested in it. Wow. Preach. Of course you're saying, you know, what what we we pound the table, well, not literally because it messes up the recording system, but we, you know, we're really trying to make that point consistently that no matter what, what the cult has told you as it has indoctrinated indoctrinated you that it is just a job and i think that one of the reasons that that it that it works that kind of indoctrination works is that so many people in the academy want to separate themselves from capitalism and think it's not a job it's a calling it's a it's whatever it is that separates it and when you can get back to no it's a job and i mean do the job or not do the job i'm going to do this many hours or that many hours and what we've seen is a system where it's demanded more and more and more. People have done more and more. So setting a boundary is really hard now because everybody's overworking. But but just to sort of turn a little bit back to your research, and and maybe maybe you speak to this or maybe you can speak to it. When you for those folks who watch their graduate program be fuzzy in that year or are not going to get the job or doing the professors out and saying, I'm done. What do you think are some successful tools for Mm. engaging with and navigating that grief? Mm -hmm. I mean, what are the effective tools? I think the first one is creating a safe space where people can share without feeling like that it's going to come back at them in some way, right? You know, there's lots of scholars and, and psychologists and different people that talk about the importance of feeling seen or heard, right? Nick Holdry uh, is a media scholar who talks about voice as an essential human good, right? Our need to narrativize ourselves and, and have that be heard, right? So I think the first step is to name it, to figure out what it is that, that is making us feel sad or hurt 
or scared or victimized or angry, depending on what your experience has been. Right. And I also think feeling okay, that my experience is not your experience is not their experience. We tend to universalize the Academy does this, the Academy makes you this, right? Yeah. We're guilty of that. Yeah. Yeah. I think we are all guilty of it, but I think that ethos harms us. Right. I've noticed just from going from somebody who was contingent, right. In a three-year instructor role, which is still a great contract in the Academy, right. To um, somebody on a longer contract, right. And, and the possibility for tenure, it's even a mindset thing, right. I'm not constantly watching my back right now. And as much as that's, the fault of the academy and the institution. It's also me internalizing that message that there's no amount of security here for me. There's no amount of anything I can do that's going to be worthy in this space, right? Whereas if I had a regular day job, I could be fired at any time too. I might have signed a termed contract also. So I think some of it is also naming the thing we're feeling in a space where it's safe to do so, like these groups you, y'all have created, but then also recognizing that it's okay if if the narrative that I've been a part of doesn't fit completely onto my story, that my story can be somewhat unique while also acknowledging that it fits within a system right. and that system is still oppressive, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah it does. I, I, I think when Kel was asking her question, I had this sudden... And, and also listening to you talk, I had this sudden sensation of a way of framing this that I haven't before, that it's like a misidentification. And there's probably some theorist who has said this way, way better and more sophisticatedly than I'm about to. But it's as if, as if people choosing the academic, quote-unquote, academic career thought that they were saving themselves uh, and choosing freedom and light and everything good by identifying with the academy as a space outside of capitalism when actually right now the saving yourself and the free and such freedom as there is in 21st century America or whatever is actually by acknowledging that it is not a space outside of capitalism yeah, that it is right. capitalism that you are in capitalism you can't get out of it and so the longer you stay within this myth- mythologization the longer you're actually trapping yourself but I think that it's awfully difficult, but it's a misidentification. So you actually have to change your understanding of what that thing is that you attached yourself to, which is the academy. What is it? I don't know if that made that, any sense to anybody. It, do, it does, but I also think that, that, that it leads right back to your work in that in doing that, I mean, that, that naming it, that saying this is what's going on, because we can talk about, oh, well, you have to move yourself from this to this understanding to this understanding. But that move is filled with grief. It is filled with grief. It is filled mm-hmm. with what I thought, that idea of anticipating what was going to happen, and then that not happening. And that ambiguous feeling of, there's no, I mean, there's no way to say, this thing that didn't exist, that I lost... The, the thing that was physically not here that I lost and I'm grieving, that grief is incredibly hard to explain to most people. But it's also, I, I just keep thinking of Lama Rod Owens and his whole, who's a um, black queer Buddhist, that I read quite a bit of his work. And and he talks about the steps of, of addressing those big emotions coming up. And it, you talking about naming it really brought that back to mind because he says see it 
first of all, see it. And I go back to Baldwin, you know, can't change everything, but you can't change anything if you don't acknowledge it's happening. That is a serious, uh, <laughs> what do you call it? Um, like I forgot the word. No, yeah. I, I was paraphrasing. Uh -huh. That's it. <laughs> That seeing it first and then naming it, this is actually going on. And then he has the next step in his sort of process is owning it. And I think that that next step, right, naming that it's going on, but then actually owning that it's happening in your body and your experience, which that's the part I feel like where the gaslighting goes on. Like that's not really happening. This isn't this. And we see it in all different facets of culture, but we see it in the within institutions quite a bit. You're not really experiencing this. It's not really unsafe. It's really fine to go back to the classroom. Your students are doing really well. Mm -hmm. um, that, that like owning that it actually exists in your body and then experiencing it is such a big step. So I, I guess I'm just looping back again to you is like, you, if you say, okay, I'm going to own this, I'm going to see this, Where's the path out of being stuck in it? Because we see people get stuck in their in their anger, in their frustration, in their bitterness. And it is, if I could just chime in, it is that ambiguous grief, just like you are talking about, because it is the absence of a job. It's the absence of a right. career that you imagined. It's a thing that you thought was going to come into tangibility that is now not tangible. It is it is gone. And so, yeah, how do you grieve that? I mean, I think the only way out is through, right? So <laughs> right. it's it's naming it, but then it's not getting stuck in it, right? Also, it's a it's a reframing of the things we've been taught that we know are not true, but but we've ingrained in ourselves, right? It's a lot of the gaslighting comes from outside, but a lot of it comes from within because we've all been we we're all educated in, in this in this space that, that told us what was valuable and what was not. Right. right. So that I am the happiest I've ever been at work this year. And that's not because I got promoted. That's awesome. That's nice, whatever. But that's not the thing that's making me feel more secure. What makes me feel better is an intrinsic knowledge. I spent all of the last summer doing consulting, hourly consulting outside of the Academy. I made a living off of it. I didn't need this, this was not my identity. My value was not in this. My value was not in my job. I have two sticky notes on, on the wall of my home office. One says your value is not in what you produce, right? Like you are valuable as a human. The second one says you don't need them. The them changes, right? But I know that I'll be okay with or without this job. And so I'm able to dive into this job as much as it suits me on the particular day. But on the days that it doesn't, I get to feel my feelings and I'm not going to talk myself out of those feelings. So I think naming it, feeling the feelings, sitting with the feelings, figuring out what is the actual problem that I can address? What are the problems that are well beyond my ability to address? Try to address the ones that you can. And if it's still not working for you, if you still feel shitty after all of that, recognize that you have the agency to make a change. You don't have to do this. Mm -hmm. We also have this like myth that like the, and I've, I'm so guilty of this. I said this to my spouse probably 1000 times last year. If I don't get a job here, I'll never work in the academy again. And all <laughs> this work I've done is a waste of energy. And I wrote a book for no reason, like just so dramatic. Once <laughs> the door closes, it slams shut. 
the deadbolts go up. No one can break through that deadbolt. Says who? Right. Why? Right. right? Why can I not go work in the industry, learn a bunch of amazing stuff, come back, apply for a job, show how valuable that would be to students, put that into work that means something to me when I'm in a much better, maybe financial position, emotional position, social position, right? Why not? But we've decided that that's true in our discourse. So like, also, I think it's, it's a pattern interrupt, right? Right. This is so silly. What I was going to say is my mentor gives me a kazoo to keep in my pocket. Anytime I need a pattern interrupt that I'm falling into a thing that I think is true, but I really know is not true. I just play the kazoo. I don't, I think that's <laughs> fucking brilliant. I'm so glad you said that. Right. Because that's so I'm going to have to steal some version of that. I'm just going to, I'm going to own that right now in the land of unstuck. And when I'm coaching groups and individuals and, and I talk about recognizing your thinking patterns and, and asking if it's true and falling back on the Byron Katie, the work of like, is it true? Is it really true? How do you feel when you believe that? <laughs> so that, that whole idea of you can actually just come up with a thing that's your interruption. It's a kazoo. It's whatever it is, is that disrupt, you know, we, we use it with animals, right? Disrupt bad behavior. Mm -hmm. We, when they're misbehaving, we have clickers and we have noises and we have things to stop them. Mm -hmm. Right. And so it's, that's just, that's amazing. I'm really glad you shared that. Bells in your pocket. Um, they're just jingle bells, but my mentor calls them joy bells. That's also a good one because you're like feeling stressed out. We tend to go inward, put our hands in our pockets and suddenly you don't even mean to use the pattern interrupt, but you hear it. Right. right. It's just cueing to us that we've been taught to believe this thing, but like so many of the things we've been taught to believe, it's based in a construct of normal that's meant to enforce the status quo mm -hmm. and keep power dynamics the way they are and not let them change. Right. Because a small handful of people aren't invested in that. And we've been taught that we should be invested in that. So we're complicit in it, but we don't have to be. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so just to wrap up, because we're, we're, we're out of time, take, uh, this is a big challenge, I think, take what you just said, I know, <laughs> I'm going I'm to give you the hard question. <laughs> um, and maybe it's so hard that I can't even articulate the question. But if we say, look, these are the places that we've been taught to maintain this system of power. These are the places where we're complicit in our own demise, or our own confinement, right? Where does grief work come into that in freeing yourself from those things? Where does grief work fit in there? I think it is about naming it and sitting with it and sharing it. Mm -hmm. um, not sharing it everywhere. We all know that not every place is a safe space to share your vulnerability, but finding a space where you can, whether that's with a professional therapist, whether that's in a social media group where you feel safe, whether that's with a friend, but a space where you know that you can say, these are the things I'm experiencing and feeling, and it makes me profoundly sad. And I just need you to hear me, mm -hmm. right? A step one. And then maybe down the road with, with that community say, and now I need you to help me find my way out. Right. right. I need you to help me find my way through. Right. I think it's finding the people I I've said this about my family in the past and in, in things I've said publicly, finding people who will sit in the shit with you, right. who will say, this is messy and stinky and we're all covered in shit, but we're here 
and we're going to figure it out. Right. And so it's a way of honoring your feelings without getting paralyzed in them. And I think that's kind of what a lot of people have carved out in social media spaces. Um, they've found a way to say, I don't necessarily have an answer, but I think there might be some collective power of problem solving here Mm -hmm. because you've acknowledged that at the baseline, what I'm saying is true, because I think the way I've worked in, like even in DEI stuff or in trauma stuff, if somebody names their experience as having hurt them, it is our job to believe them. Right. It is not our job to try to convince them that that's not the case. So we can return them to a normal state of productivity, right? It is our job to believe them. And it reminds me of a cartoon I saw years ago about, about supporting people who are struggling with depression is that there were these different series of cartoons of like one was somebody was down in a hole and one was somebody reaching down and, and, or calling down and then reaching down and then putting the ladder down, right? All the things to try to pull you out in the last frame was somebody just sitting down in the hole. And I think that it's so, so, so hard, especially for women who are trained to try to fix it, especially for white women who are trained to try to fix it. So the system can maintain itself to really just go down there and sit and say, yeah, I'm just going to sit with you here because this is hard and I'm going to sit here. Well, it, it, it means the person has to have done their own trauma work. Right. To well, not, instead of like, to be able I'm going to get you out of this scary place because it's this freaking, is freaking me out. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I think one more thing that I think is, is relevant here is I did a lot of pain therapy for physical pain. I had chronic pain after, after my surgeries. And um, one of the things I learned in this technique called the associative awareness technique was that when we get a pain signal, whether it's physical or emotional pain, our body reacts intuitively, our muscles tense up, we, we sort of have this patterned reaction. And so sometimes actually the pain signal might not be that bad, but our reaction might make it even worse because we're kind of accustomed, but all it takes is 10 seconds to stop that reaction, to recognize like, what is the actual danger I'm in? What is the actual pain that I'm experiencing? How severe is this? Right. Mm -hmm. And so I think part of it, just like with a potential solution to to all of the institutional problems of higher ed, right. It's slowing down. Give yourself just 10 seconds. We don't have to respond immediately when someone shares their feelings with us. And when we share our feelings with somebody else, let's give ourselves 10 seconds to gather our thoughts before we speak. We don't have to jump on the conversation um, the way we're kind of accustomed to that, that there's kind of a gift in giving yourself even 10 seconds of silence to think with and to sit with yourself and to sit with the other person. Wow. Well, on that note. Yeah. Let's end there. Thank you so much, Samira, for taking your time to be with us today. This was, this went, this this was even more than I could have hoped for. Uh, I was, you know, uh, when I invited you, I was all, my mind was blown then. My mind's even more blown now <laughs> at the wisdom that you're bringing to all of these questions. And so I just want to really thank you for taking your time to share them with us and with our listeners. And you have helped a lot of people today. Well, thank you too. And I just want to say thank you for the community because I've used a lot of your resources, both Uh, inside and outside the academy and I've appreciated um, being able to share space with you thank you yay